And Lord, we do confess that to you today. Uh, things around us don't always appear that way. We don't always feel that way. But we know the reality is, is that you are good. That you love us with an everlasting love. That you delight in us and rejoice over us with singing. That you love us with a perfect love. And that you cause all things to work for good to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. So we rest in that today. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our good shepherd. Amen. You may be seated. Jason, you can come on up. Uh, Just a few things before Jason gets going. Number one, just want to reemphasize, we're going to, if you have been new here, just kind of checking the place out, we're going to have a coffee in that room right there, five and six, right after the service. It's kind of what we call our front porch, a chance to just sit around, meet some people, and get to know a little more of what we're like. I wish we had swings in there, but we don't, but we'll, we'll pretend, I guess. Uh, second thing, I, I think one of my children sent me this, the 20 years of tornadoes, and I, here's why I'm showing you this. Two weeks ago, we talked about undulating in the spiritual life, right? Even tornadoes undulate, okay? Everything undulates. And here's why I'm saying that, because somebody today came up to this week, was talking to me, frustrated with their parenting, and they're like, you know, I'll do good for a while, and then I, I just like lose focus, and then like a month later, I'm like, what, what in the world are we doing? We're running crazy, and was really frustrated. And you know, I just want to remind you that the undulating, it applies to everything, your parenting. So let's not kill ourselves, okay? It just, it, it is what it is. We just, in everything, we go through our up and down and our intentionality and all of that. So just, when you realize it, just refocus and recommit to him and parenting well. So let's not beat ourselves up in anything in the spiritual life. And then I think I have two more things. Yeah, so this summer, we're going to do a series of the book of Proverbs. And if you've never read Proverbs, it's one of the most practical books in the Bible. Um, I have a re- summer reading schedule that will take you through in June, July, and August through the book of Proverbs. They are back there by Jesse. Um, actually, I would like, could I have two, two of our usher guys who would be willing to stand at the two back doors on the way out, and if people are wanting one, that they could hand them out? Are there two guys who would do that for me, who have a little bit of time after service? Okay, I see one hand there. Do I see another hand? There's another hand. So if, if you want one, grab this. Um, it will take you through Proverbs. If if you're still kind of new to this Jesus thing and like daily Bible reading is not a part of your life, I highly recommend it. Um, Jesus says, my words are spirit and they are life and we are created to, with, a, with a spiritual need for nourishment and to have some time with God every day. And so if you're out of the pattern of daily Bible reading and want to get back in, this is a great way to, for you to go through Proverbs this summer as we, we work through it in our sermons. And it's going to ask you to do three things, and I just have an example. So let's say the week, that week, whatever week that is, but on June 12th, Let's say when I read that day, I, you just pick one of the Proverbs that God speaks to you, touches your heart, and say that day for me, it's Proverbs 4.23, where it says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And then all you do is you just, you just think of an application, a way to apply it, and then you turn that verse into a prayer to God. And I gave an example of that. So maybe I read that and I'm like, wow, I've been giving everything attention these days but my heart and my soul. 
I'll use the summer Bible reading through Proverbs. Isn't that a really great, great prompt right there? I'll use the summer Bible reading through Proverbs to make sure I give attention to my soul every day. And then you just turn the verse into a prayer. Lord, in the craziness of my life, I focus more on externals than internals. Give me strength to spend some time daily in Proverbs so you can do soul work in me. So it's just, you know, every day try to take one proverb and apply it to your life. One other thought I have about the whole thing of family and parenting. There was a time when our family went through Proverbs together. And just every night at supper, we read. You could do this at supper every night. Just whoever's there is there. You read through it, and you have everybody just go around and share which proverb most speaks to them and how they can apply it. So that's just an idea you can do as a family. Okay, one other thing. I don't think Ryan and Kelly are here this, in this service. Is that right? I don't think so, but Ryan and Kelly Emmerich, this is their last Sunday with us. They are moving to uh, Wichita. Is that right? Andover, Wichita area, I think. And so if uh, you want to hang around a little bit and see them before the next service and say goodbye, feel free to do that. So can we pray for them? And then I'm going to have Jason come up. So, Lord, we pray for the Emmerichs as they, you are moving them on to a new place in their life, a new place in your kingdom. And they've always desired to do your kingdom work wherever they are. And I pray that you would help him, them to find a, a healthy community they can be a part of, that they can offer their gifts to, that they can grow through, and that they would find their kingdom place down there, um, just being a part of restoring all things to you, one person, one place at a time. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And so today, Jason is going to preach for us. Um, Jason, you came, what year did you guys come? 2005? 2000, wow, it's been a while. So Jason works on campus with the college students and has been leading Christian Challenge since that time. I, most of you guys know him, but I appreciate you being willing to step in today. So, You know, I, I think it was last week, Gary and I were joking about we were talking about what I should preach about today, and I think he said something like, whatever you haven't figured out yet, or whatever you're wrestling with or struggling with, and growing up, whenever I saw pastors, preachers, I thought they were more spiritual than everybody else, and the reality is, like, if you know us, uh, my wife knows this, my children know this, um, I'm just sharing the stuff that I haven't figured out yet, and I've had to pray and, and read and ask God to, to teach me. So it just spills out into what I share uh, with college students and then what I share with you guys. So I, I would say this morning, um, when I'm talking about college students, there are two things that I try to boil everything down to, to two things. Uh, one is sharing my faith with college students. I get to, to share with them that I believe that, that Jesus is the, the one and the only one who rescues us from sin. And so I get to, to talk through that, uh, that truth of being spiritually rescued. The second thing that I do with college students is really only two. Um, every, it probably spills into every sermon I've preached at, at 12th Avenue and every conversation that I have, uh, you know, every cup of coffee that I'm sharing with college students. I'm either talking about Jesus and what he saves us from, or I'm talking about um, what he saves us for. Um, discipleship, the, the growth that happens in the Christian life. And so that's what I want to talk with you about this morning is discipleship or training. Now, the, some of you know this, that the Dirty Kansas bike race just finished last night. And uh, Lisa and I went down uh, downtown and maybe some of you went downtown to, to watch them like racing through the chute at the, at the end uh, coming down the, down the street. Just it's really neat environment. It's a lot of fun. 
And then some of you, many of you, have uh, taken part in that race before. Some of you have done, you know, 200 miles on gravel. I, I don't like driving 200 miles on gravel, not to mention riding a bike 200 miles. Many of you have done 200 or 100 or 50 miles on gravel. And over the years, you come in and, and you, tear your, you tell your stories on Sunday morning. And so I have heard those stories year after year. And Lisa and I were talking about this last night. I start to feel a little bit of desire to to dust off my unused mountain bike and, and get out there on the road. And I feel a little bit of desire, and I think maybe I would try to get out and, and do that. Uh, but you know what? The, the difference is that, that trying is not going to, to see you through 200 miles. Trying is not going to get you through the gravel and the sun and the mud. Only significant training. A significant time, mile after mile of training, is what's going to get you through the miles and the sun and the mud. Trying will not get it done. Only training brings about desired results. This morning, I want to show you a text from 1 Timothy that talks about that reality in a spiritual sense. And the big idea for this morning that I want you to walk away with is this, that spiritual training is the joy of getting a little bit better at what really matters. I think that's what spiritual training or discipleship is all about. So I want to show you in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where that comes up. The two big ideas I want us to remember. I want you to hear me say, I want to share with you a little bit about owning your spiritual training and then recognizing the value of spiritual training. So this comes up in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And here's what the text has to say. Paul, talking to Timothy, says this, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and we strive because we've put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So first thing I want you to think about is owning your training. I think we have to take personal responsibility in spiritual training. In verse 7, Paul says, train yourself to be godly. This training means a, a spiritual, a sweaty effort with no distractions. Um, the Greek verb for train is gymnazo. Now, you don't know that word, but you do know it, right? Because it has gym, gymnasium, gymnastics. That's where that language comes from, this language of training. And this is a verb that shows up four times in the New Testament. First, here in 1 Timothy, and then I want to read the other three places where it shows up. But it just means to, to train with full effort, full force, um, to practice in a way that brings about proficiency. So these next three examples of this verb in the New Testament, the first one is in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. And this is a, a place of scripture. Some of you have heard that language, that verse that talks about the idea that you're not mature enough, and so you need spiritual milk. But as you become mature, you'll need uh, grown-up food. So here's what Hebrews 5.14 says. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained 
gymnazo, by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the author of, of Hebrews is saying you are trained in maturity, trained to know the difference between good and evil. And then he uses it again in Hebrews 12, 11. And in this uh, verse, it's talking about the idea of God's discipline trains us. So here's what Hebrews 12, 11 says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it, gymnazo, that we are, are trained by God's discipline. Now, Peter uses the same verb in a little bit different way in 2 Peter 2, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Peter says that false teachers are actually trained by sin. Here's what it says. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have their hearts trained in greed, gymnazo, in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. So Timothy says that physical training is of some value, but training in godliness is something that, that we have a responsibility to do. Uh, it says that the immature Christian is lacking in training in Hebrews. It says that at times even God trains us when he brings discipline in our lives. And it says that, that sin even is something that trains the ungodly. One last way to think about this verse, I want to read the message translation. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Exercise daily in God. I love this part. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so making you fit both today and forever. So you've got this idea of training in godliness, gymnazo, the effort, the work, the training that changes our souls. Now, I wanted to give you a, an illustration of a law that I think is at work that Paul is talking about. It's a law of progress over time. Now, to illustrate this, I went to my garage and I pulled out some weights. And this is uh, 135 pounds. I have to be careful. The thought crossed my mind that if the stage is not level, like if I'm talking and this starts to roll off of the stage, it's going to make a big bang and it's going to be a real distraction, which is what a good sermon illustration is, is usually turns into. So here's 135 pounds. Uh, pull this out of my garage. Uh, I am curious if I asked, like a, a real serious weightlifter, 135 pounds, pressing this overhead is like a warm-up. It's no big deal. But... If I were to ask, like, I don't know how many people will be at church this morning here on 12th Avenue. Let's say out of 100 people, how many of uh, 100 people, you know, if I lined them up and, and we came up on stage and you attempted to press 135 pounds overhead, how many could do it? You know, some of you already know, like, you're like, yeah, I, I live in the gym. I could do that. Some of you, uh, Annalie was like, I want to come up on stage and try to lift it just as an illustration. But here's the, here's the point. Annalie could try, right? Or some of you could try. You could come up and you would grab a hold and you would grunt and sweat, but the trying is not going to lift the 135 pounds. Now, I, I want you to think about kind of a, a thought experiment with me. If we took those 100 people who tried and couldn't do it, but we got a good coach, 
we got someone who could teach you about proper form. And we set up a program where, you know, uh, after work on, on certain days of the week, we came to church and we started with 35 pounds and worked our way up to 135 pounds. And maybe uh, someone coached us on, on diet and stretching and form. And over the course of, of time, let's say six months, do you think that hundred of people who could not lift the weight, after that kind of training, would the number of people who could do it, would it go up or would it go down? It'd go up, wouldn't it? Like, I don't think, I don't think any, I don't think I would have any disagreement that maybe if a hundred people lined up and five people could do it, and then we put in six months of training with a coach and, and worked our way up, the number wouldn't go from like five to three, it'd go up, right? There's no disagreement about it. It's a law that we've seen at work in our physical bodies again and again. Now, for some of you, the, the illustration of like physical training is lost on you. You don't care. You, you haven't done that in your life before and you're not about to start. But I think it's true in, in other parts of life. Robert moved his beautiful guitar. I was going to like go towards his guitar. But I think this is true in, in any instrument, right? If I go to the electric guitar, I have not um, practiced or trained with this instrument. I might be able to pick it up and remember one chord from when I tried one time, but I've not practiced. So I couldn't do it. But what I have had the privilege of hearing around our house uh, this year is Olivia, my daughter, playing the bassoon. Now, the bassoon, is a, it's a funky instrument. It's like, it's great big, and it just looks kind of intimidating. And uh, it's been fun to listen to Olivia's practice, to listen to Olivia's training in the bassoon. If I were to pick up Olivia's bassoon and try to make some noise, I don't know that I could get it to make any noise at all. If I could, it would sound like a dying cow. That's what the first noises that you can get out of a bassoon sound like a dying animal. That's just what it sounds like. And so I couldn't do it, but what I've had the chance to hear is how training develops over time. That um, this spring, Olivia went to the music festival, and she played uh, a section of the song of the, the classical work in the Hall of the Mountain King. And that's this tune, and maybe you're familiar with it. It goes, that was a really neat example of training. Olivia couldn't play that, and then with training, she could. And she could perform it before a, an, a judge, perform it before an audience. I think this law, I believe that this law is at work in our physical body because God has created our bodies to function this way. I believe that this law is at work in our minds, that God has created our minds to develop and to learn under training. And I believe that what Paul is telling Timothy is that God has created our souls in the same way, that our souls respond to that same law, that we are to train ourselves in godliness. It develops over time. An example of that law at work in my life that I would want to share with you is an example concerning prayer 
In my devotions recently, I was reading um, Colossians, and in Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 through 4, it says this about prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul, writing to this church in Colossae, is in prison, and he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray that the message of Jesus would find a way, an open door, a way to, to, to go out into other places, even while I'm here in chains. And so um, I feel like there had been two lessons that I'm learning from this verse. First, this is one that I haven't figured out yet, but I've just got to highlight it. Paul's in prison, but his prayer request is that a door would be opened so that he might be able to speak some more about Jesus. Um, Paul is unjustly imprisoned for speaking about Jesus. And his prayer from prison is that he would be able to speak some more about Jesus. If I were in prison, my prayer request would not be, help me to speak more about Jesus, right? Your prayer request, my prayer request, sent to the church office would be, get me out of prison, right? That's not how Paul prays. So I'm wrestling with that one. Here's the other thing that I'm wrestling with. The second lesson that that applies to my life, Um, Paul uses a verb here when he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. This language, continue steadfastly, it's used over and over again in the New Testament to describe prayer, but it's used another place that's not concerning prayer. It shows up in Mark 3, verses 7 through 10. Let me read to you about what's going on in Mark 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. The great crowd heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So Jesus has, his reputation has spread around all these places that I've, I've read, and he's near the, the body of water, and he recognizes that the crowd is getting a little bit overwhelming. So he says to one of the disciples, make ready a boat, so that if the crowd presses in too much, we can escape uh, on, the, on the top of the water. We can, we can make our retreat from the crowd on the water. And the, the word that was in Colossians 4 that says continue steadfastly in prayer is the same word here that says make the boat ready. So here's, I want you to just picture what's going on. The crowd is pressing in on Jesus. The boat is within reach on the the edge of the water. And the disciples, one of the disciples maybe stands in between Jesus and the boat. And so one of the disciples has one hand on the boat And one hand, like here's how I picture it, one hand like wrapped around the the belt that Jesus is wearing to like, you know, keep his first century robe all tucked in. That's how I picture it, is that one of the disciples has a hand on the boat and a hand on Jesus' belt. So that if the crowd surges, they can get into the boat and make their retreat. It could be life or death. It's a, a serious job that the disciple has to make ready. 
to continue steadfastly standing in between Jesus and the boat. Now, let me give you a hint into what happens in my mind a lot of life. There is uh, oftentimes, if I'm looking thoughtful, I'm, I'm, I'm stroking my beard and I'm looking off into the distance. When you see me doing that, a lot of times I'm not thinking big thoughts. I'm not thinking about, you know, I'm not praying a lot of times. I'm not doing something spiritual. A lot of times when, when I have that look on my face, here's what I'm doing. I have an internal debate or defense or, or prosecution that's going on inside of my own mind. When I get frustrated, when I get offended, when I get anxious, I carry on a persistent imaginary argument. And uh, I don't do it on purpose. I just kind of rehearse the smart things that I would say in response to somebody who's offended me. Or I, I give a, a lecture to my wife for something that she did that I didn't like. Or I, I tell my children, you know, this is what you really ought to understand. I tell college students who haven't listened to my advice, like the second or third thing that I would have said when they didn't listen to the first thing. I have this debate, this lecture that runs on my, in my head and just kind of is on loop. And I don't do it on purpose. It's just how life happens for me. So after reading Colossians 4, I am training to change that. I'm training to keep one hand on Jesus and one hand on the circumstances of my life and make ready, to, to, to be ready, to, to hold on to both and not present a lecture, not make a defense, but to pray for the person who's frustrated me, to pray for the person who hasn't listened to my advice, to pray for my children, for my wife, for college students. Because uh, my wife and my children and the students that I minister to, they don't need me to practice a lecture. They don't need me to practice a, a defense of my opinion. But I think they do need me to, to pray for them. Uh, I, and I wish that that process was an easier task. But for me, it has been a labor and it's been a striving. But I'm holding on to hope that this training will bring about results. So, own your training. Second thing that I want you to see in the text is recognize its value. In verse 8, uh, Paul says, Godliness has value for all things. Now, um, I, as a, a person who works with college students, I sometimes hear a, a voice in the back of my mind that there's a question that I always have to deal with. And the question is, does this really apply to my life? Because I feel like that's what students are asking. When I try to teach them something from God's Word, if I try to, to share with them some truth, they're thinking, does this really apply to my life? So Scripture, it teaches us that training the body or the mind has value, but the greater value is found in training in godliness. And so I want to keep answering this question, is this training in godliness applicable for my life? Um, I want to keep answering that question. And so what I've thought, what I want to share with you is that this answer, how can practices like prayer, uh, Bible reading, sharing our faith, evangelization, uh, building Christian community, how can those things be as valuable as studying for the student, working 
just resting, doing the things that make us happy. And I want to go back to that word gymnazo of training. Um, when I was doing a little uh, work on this and thinking about this passage, I stumbled onto this quote from the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. And he uses this word gymnazo of training to describe the mighty Roman soldier. And here's what Josephus said about the Roman soldier. Their military exercises differ not at all from the real use of their arms. Every soldier is every day exercised, gymnazo, and that with great diligence as if it were a time of war, which is the reason why they bear the fatigue of battles so easily. So Josephus says about the Roman soldier, they train, they, they work, they go to the gym, they gymnazo every day as if the battle was imminent, so that when the day of battle comes, they endure it easily. That's why they are the mighty Roman soldiers. That's why they're the mighty army. Training for godliness is the preparation that we need to bear the battles of this life. Training for godliness is more applicable to life than most of the other pursuits that we give our lives over to. That question that the imaginary college student that I'm having coffee with who says, does this really apply to my life? I would want to turn that question upside down and say, the things that you're giving your time and your energy to, does that really apply to your life? Um, I think the question of does Bible reading or prayer or sharing our faith or building Christian community, does it apply to my life? has little to do with what really matters. Um, it reminded me as I thought about this idea of a, a great quote from a, a talk that C.S. Lewis gave, and it talks about this, this value of godliness. And this is a, it's a famous quote. It's probably overused by, by preachers and, and people like me, but it's too good to stop using. So uh, here's a, a, a little quote from C.S. Lewis from a, a talk that he gave they turned into a little book called The Weight of Glory. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. I think what Lewis is saying is that we are pleased with things that seem applicable to life here and now. The things that we do on our phones, the things that we do for recreation, the things that we do for our ambition that, that take up our time and our energy seem applicable to this life, but it's a life like a child in a slum playing in the mud. When God says training for godliness has value here and now and forever, it has value for all things. And so I think we struggle perhaps to see the value of training, but we're actually saying, I'm satisfied with the little when there's joy, when there's great 
reward offered to us. I don't have time for training in godliness because I need to reserve time for distractions down here. So for me, when I think about the application of this idea and recognizing the value of training towards godliness, um, I see its value more and more, I think, as I get older. Maybe this is the advantage of approaching middle age. I don't know what middle age is these days. I think I'm past it, technically. I think, you know, life expectancy for the American male might be like 78 years. So now I am officially in decline in my 40s. So that's, if you're really, really old, you're like, oh, you're a young whippersnapper. But I spend all of my time around college students and I'm twice their age and they make me feel old. But here's what some years, I think, bring uh, to the table in understanding God's word. The advantage of, of middle age is this. The more I reflect on my life so far, uh, the more I've come to value spent, uh, time spent focusing on Jesus. I value conversations with non-Christian friends about spiritual truth more than other conversations. If you gave me the chance to choose between coffee with these funny acquaintances that I make at the coffee shop, these funny um, guys that I meet just hanging out, waiting for a student to show up, and we start talking about spiritual things. If you give me the choice between that conversation and just, it's good to have a conversation with a friend. It's good to have a conversation with someone who's just like me, um, someone who loves Jesus and is trying to live life. I think I value that spiritual conversation with an acquaintance more so than the conversation with someone who, who I really know and like, but we're not talking about something that really matters. I think I value that more. I think I value the time spent first thing in the morning reading the Bible and praying more than much of the rest of my day. And my days are great. I love my family. I love my job. I love my friends. I love my church. But guys, I I think if I have a choice between spending an hour with you and spending that hour first thing in the morning reading God's word and praying, I think at this point in my life, I choose the, the, the time spent with Jesus. That's not to say that you're not significant. It just means that you're less valuable than time spent with Jesus. Um, I think that I value the verses of scripture that I've committed to memory and what they mean to me more than all of the other ideas that are just rolling around in, uh, in my head. And there's a lot of random facts rolling around in my, in my mind. I'm good at trivia. Uh, I'm bad at other stuff, but I'm good at randomness. I'm good at, at random ideas. And when I think about all the stuff that's rolling around in my head, it's the scripture that's sunk into my heart that I value more than a lot of the, the other stuff. So, the value of spiritual training. The last thing that I want to share with you, kind of in closing, two, two perspectives on this. First, if you don't know Jesus as your rescuer, you can't train in godliness in the first place. You can't get into the gym. You can't pick up the instrument. You are chained, imprisoned by sin, and you need to be saved from that sin. So if that's you, I'd love to talk to you about that. I would love to buy you a cup of coffee and walk by those goofy acquaintances in the coffee shop and let's talk about it. Um, but if you have been saved 
from sin, I, I want you to know that you have also been saved for godliness. If you think of life as a Christian, as only being saved from sin, you're missing 50% of the equation. You're missing the rest of what you do with life, and that is living a life where we grow in godliness. Paul closes 1 Timothy. He closes his letter to 1 Timothy with this, this charge to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life that you were called to when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold. The language here is the language of, of action, of discipline, of training. The one thing that we cannot do as those who have been rescued by Jesus, is live life on autopilot, unengaged. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, thank you that your grace is amazing, that your love for us is amazing. Father, thank you that you are not only loving, but you are, are great and mighty, that you are a God to be, uh, that we would be in awe of you. Father, as we understand your love and we understand how uh, your greatness, Father, I pray that we, um, understanding those two ideas, would be more deeply devoted to you, and out of devotion to you, we would be willing to take on the striving and the effort of growing, training, in godliness. Father, I pray that this would become the norm, um, that in this church and in bodies of believers, that it would be the normal thing, that because we hope in you, that we would be training in godliness, that we would see the joy of getting better at this thing that truly matters. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. I am not going to go to the back door, but if you have a question about any of this, uh, if you want to talk more about salvation, about Jesus, I'll be up front. love to talk to you. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed.